0: Well, as we come to hear God's word preached to us this morning, let's join in prayer together. Father, we thank you that this is your word that we come to. We live in a world where we need to hear from you and what you have done and what you propose. And we pray that as we think about this text today, that it will certainly give us insight and blessing. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our text this morning, we come perhaps to the greatest of all the miracles that God performed through his servant Elisha the prophet. Previous to this section, we've read of the power associated with Elisha's ministry, a power that was first seen in the ministry of Elijah and was to be seen again uniquely in the ministry of the Lord Jesus much later. And about the text itself, You could be forgiven for confusing these verses of 2 Kings 4 with a very similar sounding chapter in 1 Kings 17. Comparison of the two chapters reveals some amazing similarities. Both Elijah and Elisha had been sent to widows who were in need, Elijah to Zarephath, Elisha to Shunem. Both Elijah and Elisha performed a miracle. To help these respective widows survive a time of drought and associated famine, further to this, both Elijah and elisha were directly involved in the raising to life of the respective widows' sons and in these respective resurrections, there is also a remarkable parallel in the way these miracles were performed, as both Elijah and elisha Raise the respective dead sons by stretching themselves completely over the bodies of these dead boys so what we have in a nutshell appears to be this at first glance anything elijah can do elisha can do better but then again perhaps there's more to it than that these parallels must surely be there in scripture for a reason and these reasons might be these first to help the reader understand that the Holy Spirit who rested upon and empowered Elijah was now also upon Elisha in a full and even greater measure than before. There can be no mistaking the authenticity of the ministry of Elisha because the miracles he performed were either equal to or greater than those performed by Elijah. And surely this fact was recorded for the benefit of Israel in days of spiritual darkness when ungodly kings ruled and there was so much counter to godly living and influence. Elisha's miracles were God's own witness to himself revealing the authority and the nearness of the God he served who was also the God of Elijah. But add to that reason this one. These miracles were recorded so that ultimately the ministry of Christ might be understood and foreshadowed. There's no doubt the people of Jesus' day knew well the stories of the miracles performed by Elijah and Elisha and in seeing the miracles of Jesus they would not have been able to escape the sense of God's nearness and power and the fact that God was revisiting his people again. And many times the Gospel writers tell us that the news of the miracles of Jesus just spread like wildfire across Judea, reminding people once more that the God of heaven had not forgotten his people Israel. Now to the text itself from chapter 4, some matters to note, and then some applications. First, notice in verses 8 to 10, the woman's generosity. It's apparent that the woman had some wealth, and with that wealth, As she had a great sense of responsibility and hospitality which she and her husband though he is well in the background in the story displayed to the prophet Elisha and his servant her generosity was seen not only in the meals she made for them but also the welcome she provided for them on their travels an expression of this was the room that was built up on the roof of their house Probably simple, by probably no means luxurious, but sufficient for the prophet's needs. This was an outward expression of the appreciation of the woman toward the prophet and his ministry, something that any prophet would surely have enjoyed and appreciated. The warm fellowship and the open house and the loving welcome of a godly couple whose home was not simply for their use, but also for the traveller the preacher and even the travelling preacher. Such hospitality in the midst of these days of spiritual decline and false religion would, I think, have been quite rare. We've seen already something of the hostility that Elisha faced in chapter 2 and here is the other end of the spectrum to balance out the picture somewhat. But it's not only way back then that hospitality was needed in this fast-paced world, still remains one of the most vital ministries that we could ever exercise and one of the most underestimated in the Kingdom of God and, dare I say, one of the most under Consider this, if you have a home at your disposal and, if restrictions allow, how you might influence and encourage a visitor. Guiding us along this path are two recent books that both focus upon hospitality as a key method of sharing the gospel with unbelievers. One of these books is Rosaria Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with a House Key, written by a converted atheist who herself was converted through hospitality, and a book by Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus, which looks at the whole ministry of Jesus in relation to eating and drinking with those he interacted with during the course of his many encounters with people from all walks of life. Second, a note here in verses 11 to 17, Elisha's prophecy. In seeking to respond to the kindness he had received, Elisha inquired as to what he might do for the woman. But as the woman had a husband and an income and wealth and a home, it seemed that there was little left that she required, except of course, a baby which Gehazi Elisha's servant was quick to suggest after all the woman's husband was old the possibility of falling pregnant did not appear to be high and so what transpired was that Elisha prophesied that upon his return a year later that he would find her with a child in her arms now whether or not the promised child was truly regarded as a wonderful thing depends on how you read the end of verse 16 with respect to the woman's reaction was it shock mixed with unbelief or was it that she was just fearful that all her hopes would be dashed if she allowed herself to believe that this would be the case either way she soon became assured of Elisha's words and fell pregnant and gave birth as Elisha had foretold that she would she of course follows a long line of women whose pregnancies came about in relation to the will of God, when seemingly there had been obstacles to this. There's Sarah, of course, who is well past the age of bearing children, who stands out in the pages of Scripture, and closely followed by her daughter-in-law Rebecca and her granddaughter-in-law Rachel, not forgetting Rachel's sister Leah, Samson's mother, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and of course Mary. You could probably make a case for saying that this long line of women all prepared us for Mary's pregnancy, so that when she said to the angel, how can this be, the angel might well have said, just read your Old Testament. There's something of a mystery here that we're touching on, of course, because none of us can claim to have full knowledge of God's purposes or plans that only he knows. Not only does he know, but he also makes no mistakes. Third, in verses 18 to 37, note the woman's tragedy. It seems to be a spiritual principle that after a time of real blessing that soon comes a time of trial and difficulty. Here it is again. The boy's arrival had been a blessing and his departure a real tragedy. His death was sudden and without much warning. There was no time to do anything except place the boy onto Elisha's bed and then run to get him. It seems that here was an instance where truly the Lord had given and now the Lord had taken away. This child had been a gift who had arrived so late but departed so soon. It seemed a cruel repayment for her kindness and warmth to the prophet and there's no doubt that it was with absolute heartbreak that she lay him down on the bed dead. I'm thankful to say that I've never been in her shoes. I'm truly sorry for you if you have. There was a moment many years ago when at a church camp we watched our son Andrew fall six metres from a flying fox to the ground. He was seven or eight years old. And I had to run the opposite direction to contact the camp manager to ring an ambulance, not knowing if he was alive or dead. I'll never forget the feelings that went through my being as I ran. Thankfully, you don't often die from a broken arm. And while we all should remember that the first death in the Bible is not a parent but a child, even then it seems so wrong that parents should outlive their children. And I would urge you that if you are ever in a situation where you are called to give comfort, that you remember that their pain will be so real. Even so, in the midst of this tragedy, there was still genuine faith and actions that flowed from that faith. The woman would go to Elisha and bring him back to her dead son, and all would be well again. And it was, and no less than a miracle of resurrection was granted to her, no doubt testing the woman's faith to the extreme. But she was rewarded in the end, as the gift of God to her, which had been given and then taken away, was then given back to her again. So what do we learn from these verses that will teach and instruct us, aside from the fact and the wonder of the miracle itself? Well, there are three pictures here in the story I want us to see. First, in the requirement for Elisha to be personally present at the scene, we see here a picture of the way in which God's will is done. There's a question the text poses to us. Why was it that when Gehazi ran all that way with Elisha's staff to touch the boy's face, that there had been no response? I think that question needs to be asked and attempted answer given. There was nothing inherent in the staff itself, it wasn't as though it had power of its own accord. And we have seen Elisha do miracles with it on previous occasions. And now here was Gehazi carrying it no doubt because he was younger and could run faster, but under Elisha's authority, so why was it to no avail? Some suggest that the answer is found within Gehazi, whose life was not always spiritually pure and was not always the servant of the Lord that he should have been. Was it that as he ran to serve the family in this way that he was overtaken by some sense of pride? Was it that he had within him some sense of his own importance? If that's the case, then we learn some strong lessons about the principle that God only uses clean vessels to pour out his blessings. But maybe it also reflects something that would later happen to the disciples of Jesus. Remember the occasion when the father of a demon-possessed boy came to him claiming that he had taken his son to the disciples but they were unable to help? And how Jesus upbraided the man and the crowds for their lack of faith? and how he said that prayer was the key before he proceeded to cast out the demon. Elisha may well have believed with all his heart that his staff laid upon the boy would result in him coming back to life, given that it was the symbol, if you like, of God's presence and authority. But Elisha had to learn the hard way that this miracle he sought required much more than that. It required him to be present And for him to give himself to the task, something which involved not only his soul and spirit, but his whole body. Whichever way we look at it, whichever way we look at it, the point is that where there is a call for ministry to be done, there are no shortcuts. Only God's will done God's way is sure to never lack his blessing. Second, in the picture of Elisha spread out upon the boy, we see here a picture of the ministry of Jesus. by thinking upon elisha, who raised the dead boy in this way, we are reminded of one who made the claim, "I am the resurrection and the life," right before he raised Lazarus from his tomb, not to mention others like the son and his coffin from Luke Seven, or the little girl we read about this morning in Mark chapter Five. But more than that, we also need to note well that what Elisha did reminds us of Jesus. Elisha came to the house in person. Elisha came to the house in person. Elisha entered the upper room. Elisha laid down upon the boy to impart life to him at great cost and effort, contracting himself so that his hand met the boy's hand and his eyes, the boy's eyes, and so on. In this case, Elisha did not conquer death by speech or word, but through personal anguish and the use of his own body. Does that in some way remind you of what the Lord Jesus did? Didn't he himself appear at the scene of death at Calvary? And didn't he himself bear our sins in his body on the tree? Uh, didn't he go there willingly and in doing so refuse to walk away or find some other means and on the cross didn't he contract himself to our level didn't he through blood sweat and tears agony and pain arrange for all our sins to be covered by his dying and then didn't he enter the chamber of death and lay himself down freely and willingly for our sake rising again to grant us the forgiveness of sins that we so desperately require with that mental picture that the text gives us of Elisha stretched out upon the boy think of it again in the context of the cross where Jesus gave himself for his people stretching out himself to such extremities that he might cover every one of us for whom he gave his life once again Elisha points us clearly to our Saviour. And third, in the picture of the woman's grasp of Elisha's feet, we see a picture of the key to spiritual life and health. I love the way the writer of the event brings this aspect to our attention in verse 27. After Gehazi had attended the scene equipped with Elisha's staff and had unsuccessfully raised the boy to life, The text says that the woman caught hold of Elisha's feet and that she did this even though Gehazi mistakenly tried to push her away. Let's think on that. The woman caught hold of the prophet's feet and stayed there despite opposition. It's just a small thing to note, but what an image this provides us with, bringing to mind an illustration of what saving faith is and what the key to spiritual life and health is. Like the woman who once wept over the feet of Jesus and then dried them with her hair and then perfumed them for his burial, clinging to Jesus despite the evil thoughts of those who saw all this take place. Here we are taught that making Jesus our focus and clinging to him not only brings results, But it is the way forward in so many aspects. Someone has suggested that this is just what the church of today needs. Nothing more than clinging to Jesus, clinging to his word and clinging to his promises, clinging to him. It's not better methods, not more prophets rods, not more half-filled servants, nor anything else except more crying out to and clinging to our Elisha, to our Jesus. Give this woman a gold medal for showing us how this can be done. Did she know that Elisha could raise the dead? You'd have to say probably not. Not even Elisha knew at that point. But yet she clung to him in humility and desperation. Compare what she knew then with what we know. What we know is that Jesus can raise the dead. What we know is that Jesus can do what no mere man can do. What we know is that he holds in his hands the keys to life and to death. What we know is that good things happen when we cast ourselves at his feet because of who he is and his power. That which is performed in our own strength has often as much effect as the staff in the hands of Gehazi, but that which cries out to the one who is able to save not only brings God's blessing, but also much fruit. We could think here of what E.M. Bounds wrote long ago. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organisations or more and more novel methods, but people of prayer. Did you hear that? We don't need new or better methods. We need older and tried methods. More simple methods, yet harder. Casting ourselves at his feet, more dependence upon prayer, more clinging to him, even at the expense of forsaking our own plans, our own ideas, our own efforts. More clinging, less complaining, more submitting, less presuming. The answers that the church needs for spiritual life and health the answers that you need for spiritual life and health are found in clinging to the feet of christ and so we leave the text with that challenge one that always brings us back to one of the fundamentals of what it means to follow the lord jesus and what it boils down to is this are you ready for this it's no hidden secret It's a tried and true principle. It's this. More of him, less of you. More of him revealed through you. Less of you trying to serve him in your strength. More of his will being done. Less of you thinking that you know what his will might be. As John the Baptist once said, he must increase and I must decrease. That's the challenge, that I may know him, said Paul, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Will you pray along with me and with Paul that we might take this on and find all our hope in him and no one else? Let's pray our heavenly father we come with humble thanks to you that your word refreshes and strengthens us and as we thought today upon the ministry of elisha in relation to this woman from shunem we are reminded of the lord jesus christ who gave himself for us but also rose again in power to fill us with your spirit Oh, that we might have more of him and less of us, more of his will being done through us, less of us thinking we know what that will is. Grant this blessing today. Help us to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus and enable us to be your humble servants for we have no strength of our own no power of our own, no wisdom of our own, but we rely now upon you. Equip us to serve, we pray, and have your way through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.